Well, it is good to be able to open up the word with you as Pastor Zach mentioned and prayed for. Pastor Kenny and a pretty large group from our church are on a Footsteps of Paul trip. And uh, so please be praying for them, for their safety, and that it would be just a good and refreshing time for all of them. Uh, But it it is my honor and privilege to be able to open up the word this morning We're going to be continuing in our series on the Psalms, and so far uh, in our series on the Psalms, praying the Psalms, we have covered Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, 22, last week we were in Psalm 23, this week we're skipping one Psalm and going to Psalm 25. But the reason that I mention uh, these other psalms at the beginning here is that I want to point out something about the psalms in general. The opening verse of almost every psalm is unique. There are only a handful of psalms that share an identical opening verse. And in those few cases, the psalmist actually seem to be intentionally quoting the other psalms. So here are the opening lines to our psalms so far, starting with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. From Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So why is it the case that each psalm has a unique opening verse? Well, it's because the psalms are musical poetry, they are songs. And with any good song, you can recognize it by its opening line. So think think with me for a second. If I say, And can it be that I should gain? What happens? You begin to hear the next line. You begin to even hear the tune of the song in your head. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, you can finish it out and maybe even get to the chorus of that song. Then sings my soul. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name on Christ the solid rock. See, isn't this fun? Let's do a couple more. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. That had to feel like a bit of a jolt. Wise men say only fools rush in. You can hear the rest of the song. Maybe you can even see a face. If you like to talk to tomatoes. All right, so if you're as old as me, you might not have gotten that last one, but there's a few of you who have, I know. So I want you to see that, the, that there is power in carefully selected words when they're attached to a song. And it can instantly take our minds from here to there, and we almost don't have a choice about it. So we have to know that when Jesus said from the cross, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would have been like a bolt of lightning to any of the Jews present at the crucifixion. They would have remembered the whole song. They would have remembered the whole psalm. And they would begin to see with their eyes. Jesus is encircled by an angry group of men. He's being mocked by every person who walks by. And now they've just pierced his hands and his feet. He's being poured out like water and his bones are out of joint. And wait a minute, what's going on here? They've just cast lots for his clothes. How is this happening? Psalm 22 is playing out before my eyes. When Jesus said that from the cross, that's what he intended to do. To recall that psalm in their minds. So the psalmist, and ultimately God as the author, meant for these psalms, these songs, to be memorable. The opening lines of each psalm were written to evoke the message and the imagery and the emotion of the whole psalm. And that way the psalm can be remembered at any time for prayer and for praise. So I take us through that little exercise just to encourage us to always pay attention to the first lines of a psalm. It's a great place to start because we're, we're usually gonna be able to remember the theme of the psalm and probably even a few of the key verses. So what is our opening line today? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 25, if you haven't already. And I'll be reading from the ESV. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Some of us are maybe familiar with this in the King James. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And if you grew up listening to the Maranatha music of the 70s and 80s, you probably heard that whole song go through your head, which is this song. And just keep in mind that this opening line is the posture of the whole psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they are from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. I'm gonna pause there for now. This is God's word. The very first thing that I want us to note is that this psalm is not a psalm of desperation. It's a serious prayer, but it's also a calm and quieted prayer. Psalm 25 is the confident prayer of a mature believer. Psalm 25 is the confident prayer of a mature believer. Well, we know from the passage that David is no longer a young man. He is recalling the sins of his youth. 
But presently, David is finding himself in real danger. But at the same time, David shows us throughout the psalm that he already knows and trusts completely in who God is. It's very clear that David knows God personally. And just as a side note, right here at the outset and then nine other times in this psalm, David refers or addresses God by his personal name, Yahweh. I wish I had time to go into that, but I'm hoping that you can see the significance. Verse two, oh my God, in you I trust. So David is saying, I lift up my soul. I place my whole life in your hands. I'm taking my hands off the wheel. I'm not even gonna try and save myself by going a direction that I might have devised. And so it's from that place that David comes to the Lord and makes his request. He trusts God completely. So what is it that David is asking for? That brings us to number one, the meaning of shame. The gateway to understanding Psalm 25 is to understand what David means by the word shame. We see it three times in the first few verses and then we see it again in verse 20 as David begins to bring this prayer to a close. Today when we think of the word shame, we tend to think of it differently than David is using it here. When we think of shame, we typically think along the lines of being exposed or being painfully embarrassed in connection with our guilt. And the Bible does use the word shame that way a few times but that is not the primary way that the Bible uses the word shame. When we see the word shame in the Bible, it's most often the idea of being let down or being disappointed or putting your hope in something that ends up being untrustworthy, that ends up being untrustworthy. And so we see this clearly in a number of passages in regard to those who put their hope in God. And you have all of these on your outline, starting with Romans 5.5. 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul is saying our hope in God has not disappointed us. God has come through, he has redeemed us, he has given us the seal of his Holy Spirit. We've not been put to shame. Isaiah 49, 23, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. So then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah in Romans chapters nine and 10. You have these as well. Romans 9.33, as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And from Romans 10, as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So we see this idea of shame is connected exactly to this idea of being disappointed we will not be disappointed, we will not be put to shame. So the meaning of each of these verses is that anyone who stakes their life on God will never, ever be disappointed. And that's the idea of shame that we find 
in Psalm 25. And so that brings us to number two on your outline, the request. In verse two, we see David's request, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exalt over me. And so David is saying, Lord, I have staked my entire life on you. Please don't disappoint me. Please don't let me down by letting me fall. Don't let my demise prove that my trust in you was misplaced. So now look at verse three. Look at this confidence that David has that the very thing that he is praying for doesn't happen to those who are waiting on God which at the moment, David is actually doing. He is waiting on God. Verse three, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. None who wait for you. David has every confidence that God is not going to disappoint in upholding him so long as he is fully trusting God. And so what is David even praying for then if he is fully trusting God? Well, David knows himself. He knows himself all too well. And so this is the true essence of his prayer. This is on your outline. Oh God, in you I trust. Please help me to keep trusting. And that is a prayer that God will answer. So at this point, David is not going to be put to shame, but rather his treacherous enemies are. Listen to what God says about the hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world in comparison to the wisdom of the cross in Colossians 2. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, i.e. Satan and those who he controls, he made them a public spectacle triumphing over them by the cross. And the ESV says he put them to open shame. God's enemies will absolutely be put to shame. Number three, enemies and sin. So let me say a quick word about enemies. One of the mistakes we can make when reading this psalm is to assume that we don't have enemies. We see, well, David's got enemies, but I don't, I don't feel like I have enemies, like, like David has enemies. But don't be fooled, you have enemies. The Bible is clear that you have enemies. The Bible says that Satan prowls like a roaring lion seeking who he may, who he may devour. De- Satan is dead set against you. Satan is your enemy. Ephesians 6 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Satan and his demons are a powerful enemy. And besides Satan, we have another enemy. And this one is always close by. It's our very own sin nature. I don't know if you've ever thought about your sin nature being your enemy, but believe me, it is. 
Our sin nature stands in total opposition to God, always. It's always lurking around, ready to come to life, wanting to please itself and drag us down with it. So, between Satan and our sin nature, and along with the evil system of the world, we have real enemies. So even though David has total confidence in God, this is one of the reasons that David is praying. David, just like us, has real enemies. He is confident in God's help, but he is also not blind to the fact that his enemies pose a very real threat. And there's another reason why David is praying. David is a sinner. He's very aware of his sin. And not just his current sin, but even the sins of his youth. He remembers the sins of his youth and he's still appalled by it. Look ahead to verse seven. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David knows he's guilty. And so David is praying Lord, please forgive my sin, even the sins of my youth. Let it be as if they don't even exist. Don't remember them. Forgive them completely. Don't bring me to ruin as a result of my sin and give my enemies something to boast about. For your name's sake, Lord, forgive me. Forgiveness for sin is a major concern for David, as it is with all of us. So here's David, he's sitting in the middle of a sinful world, he has his own sin, he has very real enemies, how is he possibly going to just rise above it all with a simple prayer? He knows it's not possible. There's going to have to be a continuous, godly transforming of his life if he is going to be able to stand up against the onslaught of the world. And that's where verse 10 comes in. There is a covenant relationship with God here. Look at verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Number four, obedience. David begins to ask God for the things he knows he will need to obey in order for him to be sustained, in order for him to not be put to shame. And he knows this isn't just gonna magically happen and so he begins to specifically ask God for some things. Look at verse four and five. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. You'll notice that this is not a one-time request. David didn't write Psalm 25 and just say, well, that should do it. It's automatic righteousness just from here on out. No problem, got it covered. Not at all. Psalm 25 is meant to be an ongoing prayer. It was for David, 
and it should be for us as well. The recently passed Canadian commentator, P.C. Craigie, writes something that I find really helpful when he compares Psalm 25 to Psalm 1, and you have this on your outline. Follow this closely, it's a, it's a longer quote. The prayer of Psalm 25 complements the wisdom of Psalm 1. The latter, in the more academic tradition of wisdom, established the two ways, that of the righteous and that of the wicked. But taken alone, the dispassionate wisdom of Psalm 1 could be misleading. It might be taken to imply that the essence of life was simply choosing the right road. Once the choice had been made, all would be well. But in Psalm 25, the prayer is that of a person who has made the choice presented in Psalm 1 and is walking the road of the righteous. But the dispassionate wisdom in Psalm 1 has been transformed to passionate petition in Psalm 25, for the right road is not an easy one on which to walk. It is lined with enemies who would like nothing better than to put the walker to shame. And the traveler on the road is also plagued with internal doubts as he calls to mind previous wanderings from the path and former sins. The essence of the road of the righteous is this. It is a road too difficult to walk without the companionship and friendship of God. Number five. Number five, the proclamation of the goodness and faithfulness of God toward those who fear him. So starting in verse eight, there is a definite shift in the psalm. Verses one through seven, David has been making an open request of the Lord. But starting in verse eight, David begins to proclaim the goodness and faithfulness of God toward those who fear him. Verse eight, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his, com his covenant and his testimonies. And this next verse seems to be a bit of a parenthesis as David is again reminded of his sin while he's expressing just how good God is. David knows he hasn't always been humble. He knows he hasn't always kept God's covenant. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Verse 12, he continues, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. So the one who fears the Lord and reverences the Lord and honors the Lord, that is the person that God is going to instruct in the way that he should go. And God will do that without fail. And in 13, God is going to cause this person, the person who is trusting in God, who is fearing the Lord, he's gonna cause that, the soul of that person to abide in well-being. Their children will receive their inheritance. The goodness of God towards this person will reach even their children. And it just keeps it on getting better. In verse 14, the friendship of the Lord, Yahweh, is offered to those who fear him. The NIV says the Lord confides but the idea 
of friend is, is really better here. The person is being offered the intimate communication of a friend. The word confides in the NIV is used to describe what the original Hebrew asserts, that this is a confidential discussion between close friends. And so that's what's on the table here, friendship with God, friendship with Yahweh. And Yahweh, as a friend, is going to share his covenant with the person who fears him. And finally, in verse 15, as David's eyes remain on the Lord, God will be faithful to take his feet out of the net or out of the snare. Well, all of this is very good news. This whole section, verses 8 through 15, is just God's goodness on display. But even more than that, it's actually an invitation. It's an invitation into what we would call in the Bible the blessed life. And it's not just for David. It's for anyone who will fear the Lord. So based on God's goodness, we can have a settled confidence that the prayer of Psalm 25 is a prayer that God can and will answer. In fact, he will delight to answer it. And that brings us to number six. The request revisited. So in that settled confidence in God's goodness, David goes back and revisits his initial request that he made in the earlier verses, and now we see them again in verses 16 through 22. The request is really the same, but he gives us a little bit more detail on the emotional state of his heart. And because of the overall posture of David's heart, remember, God is glad to hear from David in this. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. David is feeling alone and isolated in his troubles. That's kind of the thing about trouble. It's something that we almost always feel alone in it. Trouble almost always makes us feel alone. I'm sure every one of you can relate with that. I know I can. But David knows in his mind that he's, that he's not alone. He knows that God is with him. But in this moment, he feels as though it's just him and his enemies. And so David asks God to come to him and to be gracious to him, to show him kindness, and to show him favor. On to verse 17. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. There it is again, sin. David keeps bringing up sin. He's concerned about sin. David is praying, please don't let my sin be a part of this, equ this equation. My enemies will have a heyday with me. 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Now we're back to where we started. 
David again prays that he would not be put to shame, that he would not be disappointed for having put all of his trust in the Lord. And so he is asking the Lord, please come through. Notice what David isn't praying. David is not praying to be able to overpower his enemies. He's not praying that his enemies be vanquished. He's not even praying for his enemies to be put to shame. David's prayer is ultimately that God do a work in his own heart. David's prayer is ultimately that God do a work in his own heart. And so David is really asking the same thing that he asked for back in verses four and five. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. So how is it that we know that David is still asking for this? Well, look at verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So here is the key. God is going to use David's godly living as a means of preserving him and keeping him from shame. How is God to ensure that this happens? Well, God, in his friendship, is going to come through for David. He is going to give David everything he needs to walk righteously. David fully trusts that God will do this. Now it's for David to fully trust in a continual sense. And so again, this is David's prayer, maybe in shorthand. It would sound something like this. Oh Lord, in you I trust. Please give me what I need to trust you continually that I may walk daily in righteousness so my enemies will not be able to gloat over my failure and nor will they be able to call into question your trustworthiness. And that is a prayer that every believer can pray every day. We can easily pray this prayer in short form, just like that, but it's also a prayer that I know that I can pray word for word just as it's written and know that it can be a, a true expression of, of my heart. At the beginning, I mentioned to you that the opening line, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, is the posture of the entire psalm. And it's worth commenting on what this posture actually displays. It's humility. The posture of David's heart is humility. The posture of David's heart is humility. David is a mature believer at this point. He knows who God is. He knows who he is. We can see it everywhere throughout the psalm. The writing is really clear. God is on high. David understands that he is low. God is in the place to give, and David is the one asking. God is the teacher. David is the student. God is good and upright. David is a sinner. God is worthy of fear and reverence. David is broken and troubled. So I believe that one of God's desires for this psalm today is that it help bring us to a place of humility, to a place where we can actually be helped. 
if we can align our posture with David's posture, then Psalm 25 is ours to pray. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So here is the truth. God wants to answer the prayer of Psalm 25. He wants to be shown as faithful in the lives of his people. He does not want his people to be put to shame. He does not want his trustworthiness called into question. And so God, Yahweh, the God of the universe, is actively looking to help those who will come to him in humility so that he can make their lives a picture of his power and his glory for all the world to see. And finally, number seven, the final verse. There's one thing about this psalm that I haven't mentioned. It's an acrostic. Each of the verses of this psalm, though not perfectly, begins with the next letter of the 22-letter Hebrew alphabet. However, the last verse of Psalm 25 does not start with the last letter of the alphabet. Instead, it ends with a letter back from the middle of the alphabet. And it comes totally out of left field, just like this final verse seems to. 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. Well, this is not an afterthought, it's intentional. It's kind of like when a modern songwriter uses rhyme at the end of each line and just when you think you've got the next rhyme figured out, they use a word that doesn't rhyme and it grabs your attention. Well, that's what's going on here. David breaks the pattern and he grabs our attention. So far, this has been a very personal prayer, but now David is praying it over the nation of Israel, the nation that he has been called to lead. He knows if the nation of Israel is walking with God, then God will be honored among the nations. So what would that mean for us today? Well, I believe it means that once we've prayed this prayer for ourselves personally, we would be right to pray it over our kids, over our family, and over the church. If we as God's church are walking with God, then God can use the church to reach the nations. If I were to go back and personally paraphrase this entire psalm, it would sound something like this. And with this, I invite you to close in prayer with me. I would like for us to pray this together. Pray with me. To you, O Lord, the one who has life in himself, from whom all created things come, in you I trust completely. Please don't let me fall. Please don't give my enemies cause to question your faithfulness. Give me everything I need so that I can follow you continually. For the sake of your being known as good, please forgive my sin, all my sin. I know you are faithful to lead the humble. You are the friend of those who fear you. 
a friend who will share with me the way that I should go. May my eyes be ever on you. Come to me, Lord, and be gracious to me. My heart can no longer hold the weight of my troubles. Please don't let me fall. Please don't give my enemies cause to ridicule me and question your goodness. Protect me with integrity that comes from obeying you. I know you will answer. In you I trust. And Lord, I also pray that my children and my family and all in your church will lift their souls to you and trust you completely. Don't let us be put to shame. That your name may be glorified in all the earth. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would like to talk or or pray with someone this morning, please avail yourself to those who will be up front. I invite you to stand for our benediction. We're going to go ahead and close today. Our benediction comes from Psalm 56, one of my favorites. My enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen. Well, God bless each of you in your walk this week. Please greet those around you as you head out and have a great rest of your day.